Well, friends, I wonder this morning what you feel or think about prayer. About prayer. We've just prayed. We prayed a lot in this service, as we do every Sunday. I heard one pastor say, pray enough that those who aren't into prayer would be bored. We, we, we perhaps accomplished that here. Well, how do you feel about prayer? Do you, do you believe that prayer actually does anything? Do you believe that prayer is actually worth anything? Let me think about how the world would feel about that question. Those who do not know Christ and the things of Christ. Perhaps they would say prayer is just silly incantations that we're spouting off to some magical person in the sky who doesn't actually exist. Well, friends, I wonder, do you feel the same way maybe practically? Though you may not feel that way in your mind, but in your actions. Well, a simple determinant of this may be how much you actually speak to God. How often do you pray? And when you do pray, what do you pray for? But here's a question we don't often ask when it comes to prayer. Maybe the problem isn't so much what we pray, but why. Why do we pray? Why do we go to God in praise and adoration? Why do we confess our sins to Him and thank Him for His redemption? Why do we lay the needs that burden our hearts and our minds before the Lord? Why? Do you pray? See, these kind of questions come to my mind when I constantly hear of those among us and and around the world who are constantly, in an ongoing fashion, praying specifically for revival. Revival, we use that word. It's a word that has become uh, misused in past generations to signify something that happens once a week during the summer where we put some nice vinyl sign on the front lawn and suddenly we expect the Holy Spirit to show up. That's how revival has been seen over the last 100 or so years. But what I'm speaking of is an actual spiritual revival. Actual revival. New life among God's people. Salvation and conversion taking place among the lost. True spiritual revival. People pray for it. We call upon God and ask Him to deliver revival like fire from heaven. But why? There's always a call for revival. But have you ever noticed that there's rarely a call for reformation? We're going to enter into the month of October soon, specifically at the end of October, where we uh, remember and celebrate the Protestant Reformation. That happened over 500 years ago. But in a broader sense, lowercase r, reformation, we don't hear people talking, praying about asking God to reform us, to renew us, to transform us, if you will. The word reformation means to be remade or renewed or even to be redeemed. To reform something is to take what has been lopsided And to make it straight again. Now I don't know about you. But I haven't heard many pray for such things recently. But as we've looked at the minor prophets. We've seen that this is what their business was. They were in the business. Of seeking reformation. Calling God's people back. To true and real worship. What had become so lopsided. Among God's chosen people. In those days, they sought to set right. 
You consider all the minor prophets that we've went through so far. We're on the tail end of this series, whether you realize it or not. But, but consider how each of them, in their own particular way, has sought reformation. We have Hosea, who sought to open their eyes to their own spiritual adultery, to show them what was lopsided. They had false worship. We have Joel, who encouraged them to come together and cry out to God, specifically in repentance. It's the first step of any reformation or any revival itself. Repentance. Amos taught them how, how their spiritual adultery had played out in injustice and complacency toward one another. And how this was a wretched choice. Obadiah helped them to see that the nations were both going to be judged as well for their rejection. But also, in a gleam of hope, some of the nations would be welcomed in. Jonah showed them by his own example that God's grace and mercy are often bigger than ours. And then Micah showed them that true worship begins not with our acts, but with our hearts and our minds. And then finally, last week with Nahum, we saw that even in this, as they face the darkness of their times, they need not worry because God would, in the end, take care of their enemies. And what do all of these 12 have in common? I won't get into the ones that we haven't broached yet, but what do they all have in common? It's this one central thing. A call to return to the ways of God and find new life. A call to return to God's ways and God's means. To return to God Himself and thus find reformation. New life, transformation, to be made right. And friends, perhaps this is not clearer in any of these prophets than the one we come to today. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. That's H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K. Every time I brought it up this week, my kids asked me if I was saying tobacco. Different. We're not going to talk about tobacco today. No, we're going to talk about Habakkuk. We know nothing about him other than his name. It's given there to us, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And that's it. That's all we know about him. But this doesn't make him unique. We've seen this with other prophets. No, what makes Habakkuk a unique prophet, a prophet that we're going to be looking at today is how he begins and what the prophecy holds. See, most of the prophets begin with this title of this sermon series. Thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord to so-and-so. But Habakkuk, you see there, does not. Likewise, Habakkuk doesn't actually have a message for the people. At least not in what's given. No, this book actually centers around Habakkuk's own conversation with God. This book, more or less, is a book of psalms in some way. It is about a conversation, a prayer, an intimate relationship between a prophet and his God. Whereas Nahum, we saw last week, gave us God's mind of judgment of his enemies, this week we see Habakkuk gives us and our hearts a voice to what that process actually feels like, a.k.a. a form of reformation. This prophecy, then, is for anyone who's felt the dark about the work of God. 
who's felt in the dark about the work of God, who's felt confusion and uncertainty about what God is doing. If you've ever been there, if you're currently there or planning to go there, this is a book for you. And so as you go ahead and turn to Habakkuk, let me give you the points. And I'm going to begin by reading a portion of the first chapter. You see this book break down into three specific sections. First, we find a conversation. Then we find a funeral. And finally, we find a hymn. Those are going to be my three points. A conversation, a funeral, and a hymn. If you're looking for Habakkuk there in the Pew Bible, I should mention this. It's on page 737. He's a little prophet. So it may be difficult to find. But as you turn there, please hear my prayer for us today in our study of this book. That God would continue to bring reformation to us. As he sought to bring to his people in Habakkuk Day. Calling up Habakkuk's day. Calling us back to his ways. So, let me invite you to stand with me. As we read from the book of Habakkuk this morning. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 to get us going. Hear now the word of the Lord from Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated, friends. So this beginning section really comprises a back and forth between Habakkuk and God. We see Habakkuk lodge what we may call a complaint or a concern. God responds. We're going to see Habakkuk lodge a second concern and then we're going to hear God respond again. So it's a bit of a back and forth. It really is, as point one here is, a conversation. Look back there then at verses 1 through 4 as we consider the first complaint of this named prophet. Habakkuk names himself as the prophet, though as stated, this prophecy is different. First, because he receives it as an oracle. Oracles we find throughout the Old Testament are really these visions, particularly visions of judgment. And most often when we have oracles in the Bible, they're visions of judgment on other nations. But this isn't the only thing that makes this prophecy different. As I mentioned a second ago, it's because it is conveyed to us through Habakkuk's personal relationship with God. 
And so Habakkuk begins with a prayer of questioning concern, of delay of God's justice, a delay of God's intervention, of his help, particularly among Habakkuk's own people, God's chosen people, the people particularly of the southern kingdom of Judah. See, last week we were brought face to face with with this key question of how does God deal justly? What is his judgment? How does he work among his people? But now we see the validity of expressing it. You remember last week I began the sermon, why does bad things happen to good people? There are some Christians who would tell you, you can't ask such questions of God. You can never bring to God your concern, your questions, your doubt, or your unbelief. But we see, in fact, that Habakkuk does just that. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Friends, please hear the word of God as a, as a validation for those of you who have hearts that are heavy. Who have questions for God. Who wonder what God is doing. Let Habakkuk give you the language that you need. But what particularly troubles the prophet is that God has caused him, that is Habakkuk, to look upon iniquity while God himself seems to be untroubled. To look upon that opposition. That's what verse 3 gives us. There's this range of injustice that Habakkuk brings out. Violence, destruction, strife, contention. Culminating then there in verse 4, stating that the law itself is paralyzed. That things are so bad that those who have been given the responsibility to bring justice among the people and the society and the culture can't do it. They're utterly paralyzed. Well, who's he talking about? Again, friends, the people of God during this day. We see their great need for reforming. We see their great need to be transformed because they have utterly lost the compass of how they're supposed to act, how they're supposed to live, the justice they're supposed to take up, even among themselves. And so as... One commentator said that which was meant to guarantee the application of God's justice, the law, seems powerless in the face of violence, with the righteous unable to overcome the wicked. Friends, I wonder how many of us feel that same longing. Yes, we would admit we have received the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. But yet when we look at the world and see the wickedness, we feel like we can do nothing about it. Are we grieved? Even by our own injustice and our own indwelling sin that flares up in our own lives. And here's the question. Does God really care? Does he actually care about injustice and destruction and violence? And sin. The Psalms often roll over from complaint to reason for hope. We see this in Psalm 130, which is our call to worship today. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the question for Habakkuk as he lodges his complaint is, will God respond with the same thing as he does often in the Psalms? Well, let's look at section 2 then. It seems that God is not going to respond to Habakkuk's complaint with a note of hope like he often does. 
We do not find God's word to Habakkuk as one that brings comfort, at least not yet. God's answer for the ongoing sin of his people is not to cheer them up, but to steer them back through discipline. His objective is not to cheer, but to steer through the discipline of another nation. God speaks in verse 5, telling Habakkuk to prepare to see something astonishing. But what would you think of? Maybe like some shooting stars, some explosions, a volcano, something crazy, right? No. We see here that God says he's going to raise up not his own people, not creation, but the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are, in the strictest form, the Babylonians. They're interchangeable here, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. Similar to how Assyria is in Amos. The Babylonians are going to come now and what are they going to do? They're going to come upon God's people to ravage them and take them away. Why is this so astonishing then? Well, what blows away the righteous in Judah is that God would use a people like the Chaldeans, these Babylonians, who were known for their warring and building up upon the backs of other nations. How could God do such a thing? We're going to see this as Habakkuk's response in just a moment. But the Lord describes for Habakkuk how the Chaldeans are dreaded and fearsome. Their horses are even described as other animals, revealing their ravaging power. Like you've got to be a bad people for even your horses to be considered crazy. We see their bloodthirst for violence, laughing at kings and capturing peoples as they will do with Judah. Friends, as we step back then from this first section, we might ask ourselves, as we look at our own nation and wonder why God won't end the bloodthirst that we so often see around us. Have you ever stepped back and asked yourself, God, what do you want to do with your people today? Why are you allowing your people to live in a nation and in times that sounds so much like this one? Or the experience is so often like this. Like many of us, Habakkuk had asked God to save, but instead he is bringing a powerful nation that doesn't even recognize Yahweh's authority. For how does verse 11 end? Whose own might is their God. That God should use a violent and guilty people against violence within Judah is almost certainly not the response Habakkuk had sought. And we see this in his second prayer. Look over at verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. As Habakkuk responds to God's undesired discipline, the first thing that you should note is how Habakkuk tethers himself to who Yahweh is. Look there in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. As we go on, he says, You who are pure who of sorry, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. 
What is the thing here that, that kind of bubbles to the surface in, in Habakkuk's second complaint, his second concern? Well, he tethers himself to the very character of God. He calls God everlasting, my holy one, the one who ordains all that comes to be. He calls him a rock, the one who has pure eyes, and the very creator himself there in verse 14. All of these become anchor points for his doubt, for his questioning, and for his complaint. And friends, this gives us even clearer now how we can come to God in times of uncertainty. We can come to God with our questions. And then when they are anchored in a trust of who He is, we are then protected from sinful anger and unbelief. And so as you bring your questions before God, do so by first remembering who it is that you're calling out to. It's not a God who doesn't know. It is a God who knows all because He is everlasting. This deep abiding trust and faith, even in questioning, can be seen in Habakkuk's exclamation there in verse 12. Right there in the middle of the verse. We shall not die. We shall not die. You see, this trust from Habakkuk in God is anchored in God's holiness and God's purity as well as His creating and directing. It's what we call sovereignty. We're going to think about this tonight at the conclusion of our prayer service as we look at the attribute of God's sovereignty. It's a deep trust that He is able and will do what brings Him the most glory and what unveils the most good in the end for His people. But for now... This is a wonderful place for us to stop, especially for you children to stop and ask yourself, do you have this kind of trust in God in your own life? Do you trust God in this way? As kids and as adults, we can look at our life and feel that there are so many things that are hard and insurmountable, that there are, is darkness and sorrow and things don't often go our way. We should step back and ask ourselves, is our trust in the Lord? Children, if you find that your trust isn't in the Lord, the first best step is to turn to Him and ask. God, would you give me a heart that trusts in you, that looks to you when things don't go my way? Adults, many of us could benefit from doing the same. But that comparison there I want to draw out now between mankind and the fish of the sea leads in the back half of this complaint to a metaphor of the Chaldeans as ruthless fishermen who catch more than they need through a variety of fishing techniques. Look back there in verses 15 through 17. He brings all of them up with a hook, he being the Chaldeans. He kind of personifies them as this vicious fisherman. He brings them up with a hook with his regular net, and then he uses a drag net, which was a net that they would drag behind the boat to gather fish. All of this draws out the reality of who the Babylonians are. That they are a nation who ravages whatever they come to. They pilfer and plunder like fishermen who take all the fish out of the water and leave none for anybody else. In the end, even in this, they rejoice in the abundance of their catch and completely ignore the God who is sovereign. 
missing that they could only do so because God himself was the one who raised them up. And we see this finally as they treat their fishing tools as gods. Look at verse 16. Therefore he, remember Babylon the, the fisherman, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. This people that God has allowed to come into this place of power. Don't even recognize him as such. But instead, they turn to their own tools. The created things. And praise them. This brings it back to this final question about this looming judgment from God. Will he allow these Chaldeans to just keep going forever crushing other nations or will God act on behalf of his people verse 17 is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly mercilessly killing nations forever I wonder friends if you feel this way as you look at the world around us as you look at the nations that rise up and war against one another As you look at the wickedness, both near and far. Do you ever ask yourself, God, when will this end? Will this go on forever? But in the end, we see what Habakkuk does that we too should do. Verse 2, 1 tells us that Habakkuk will remain watchful. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower And look out to see what he, no longer he meaning Babylon, but now he, the Lord, will say to me. And I will answer concerning my complaints. We see that Habakkuk has challenged God to show his justice. And as a prophet, he now waits for a message to bring the people. Friends, we have here another tool of reformation. The watchman along the tower who wait to see and remain vigilant. And friends, my prayer for us is, oh, that the Lord would make us watchmen, that we would stand along the tower and look for a word from the Lord, that we may deliver it to the people. Have you received the good news of Jesus Christ? Then you have received the word. Do you remain vigilant to call out to the people, find your fortress here? And so now, God responds a second time. Look back at chapter 2, verse 2, for God's response. I love how it says this here. And the Lord answered me. That God did not remain silent. But he gave an answer to Habakkuk. And this is what it is. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And once again, Habakkuk receives a word from the Lord. Another oracle, a vision he is to record for God's people. 
In some ways, Habakkuk here is like Moses, isn't he? He's called to record what he receives on tablets. And he's told to do it well. See there, he's supposed to have good handwriting. Make it plain on tablets. This is why we should teach our children to write. <laughs> nah, maybe not the best application. But we see here how God speaks to him and delivers this vision to him. Now the vision's coming up. We're going to look at the vision here in just a moment. It's a vision of a funeral. But he lays out before he gets there how he is to receive the vision. Or how the people themselves are to receive the vision. Look back there, verse 3. We see there that there is a certain patience in God revealing his purposes. That the people must wait for it. That they must be patient for it. We are reminded here of 2 Peter 3.9 in our own lives. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. Verse 4 then tells us. That receiving God's word and his understanding. That to do this only comes through righteousness. That is found by faith. Not by a prideful attitude or actions. You see that. Behold his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So I've heard this quoted in Galatians 3. It's also quoted there in Romans. We're reminded that now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3, 11. And so there's a patience that's needed. There's a faith that is needed. And finally... If we are to receive God's word, we must be sober-minded, at peace, with trustful contentment. That's what verse 5 lays out. There's a soberness that's called for here. It rings so well if you look at Ephesians 5. Verse 15 says, look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is exactly what he calls for here. And friends, the same is true for us if we are to receive God's word today. For us to open our Bibles and hear what God is saying requires a proper attitude. One that is distinctively unlike the Chaldeans here. So it was for those who first received this prophecy. And so it should be for us. That we should be patient waiting upon the Lord. That we should do so by faith. With humility and sober mindedness. And trusting the spirit to fill us. And not filling our guts with wine. But what is the prophecy exactly? What is God's final answer toward Habakkuk's desire for righteousness? This is what we find in the second section in a funeral. So we enter into God's vision to this prophet. We say it takes the form of five woes. Woe. What does this word mean? We encounter it throughout the Bible. Woe. W-O-E. Woe. What does it mean? We see that woe was actually the response more often in these times from a funeral mourning. It's what people would cry out after someone had died. It was what we traditionally call a, a dirge. It was a wailing. 
But when addressed here, as we see it done here, to a foreign nation, this funeral element becomes a bit ironic, doesn't it? As Israel reflects on the end of an oppressor that is still very much alive and pressing in on their doors. And this is what makes it prophetic. This funeral tone helps us see that woes are not meant to be taunts in the sense of, of, of mockery and making fun of and laughing at. But they're taunts in the sense of wailing, crying out, Alas, how terrible! So, chapter 2, verse 6 shows us not so much a prideful gloating from God's people, but this ironic holding out of great sorrow for injustice called out by those who have suffered. And so here we have the remnant cries out against the Chaldeans. Let's go through them, and I'll read each of them as we go through. Look at the first two there. They go together, beginning in the end of verse 6 of chapter 2. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So these first two woes that are held out here in 6 through 11 can be brought together because they, they encompass the same theme. And it's the theme of unjust economics. We see there in verse 6 how these Chaldeans have stolen through loopholes. In verse 7, that they're piling up debt by taking money. In verse 8, that they're plundering from other nations. In verse 9, that they have evil gain and unjust wealth accumulation. The greed upon greed. And then verses 10 and 11, using others to get what they want. And what is the verdict? Why is there a woe cried out here? Well, verse 7 tells us that their debtors will arise. The remnant will plunder in verse 8. And then we're given that metaphor there at the end of verse 11 of the stone and the beam crying out. The woes continue in verse 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This third woe expands upon the first two by zeroing in, zeroing in not on economics, but on the evil practices of the Babylonians. Specifically, using people as slave labor. You see there in verse 12 that they built a town with blood. It sounds very Egyptian-like, doesn't it? It's how the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and built their great cities and their pyramids upon their backs, using them to expand their own kingdom. And then we find there for the first time Yahweh is brought into the picture 
showing that God is involved in what is taking place. Notice there how Habakkuk describes God in verse 13. Behold, it is not from not just the Lord, not just Yahweh, his covenant name, but Yahweh of hosts. We see here that this use, this title is important because as it's seen throughout the Bible, it's used to describe God's authority over all of creation. God's authority over specifically the nations. And God's authority over world events. What is it that God is not for exactly then? Well, God is not for, as it says here, kingdom building through blood and nations existing for no apparent purpose. So what is the point of people and nations then? What is the point of kingdoms then? Well, verse 14 tells us that the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. Friend, do you realize that? Do you realize that that is why you were created and that was why nations and kingdoms and kings are set upon thrones for the glory of the Lord? It is the very purpose for which we were made. It's why such heartache should become upon us when those who serve in high places do not honor the Lord as they should. When nations walk contrary to God because it goes against the very purpose for which they were made. Then we get to the fourth woe in there in verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. What kind of drink is this? You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. It sounds very reminiscent of what happens to Noah, right? So, so there's an image given here. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. We see now that this fourth woe builds on the injustice by building on how they have prioritized their own glory over the glory of God. The, the oracle uses, as I mentioned, that vivid imagery of authorities and leaders forcing their victims to drink their wrath until they become crushed into a shameful stupor. These Babylonians and the authorities of the nation had used their authority to shame other nations, to harm others, to make them as nothing, and to lift themselves high up. And the irony here in this woe is that those desiring to shame others will themselves be ashamed. As verse 16 says, you will have your fill, not of glory, but of shame. This woe here reveals once more who the true king of the nations is. That it is God himself. Friends, please know this, that God will not allow nations to plot and plunder forever. He will not allow His kingdom to be defamed and wrecked forever. He will bring back upon them their sins as He executes full authority 
over the misuse of their positions. So friends, we must be reminded in our own day, not just that God puts authority in high places, not just that God puts who He desires as presidents and senators and congressmen and mayors and school board officials. God doesn't just put them there, but He will one day hold them accountable for how they use their position. And we can rest in that. Whether they're doing good, or evil. Which brings us now to the final woe. We find they are revealing of who their true God is and who they are finally submitting to. Notice how it begins in verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Now here comes the woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breadth at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We have a great contrast here now that reveals the, the, the main nugget, the main nub of the issue among the Babylonians is not their war, it's not their misuse of authority, it's not their unjust economics, but it is their idolatry. It is who they have submitted themselves to. And friends, frankly put, they have submitted themselves to themselves. They have become their own gods. By worshiping things created with their own hands, they are in fact worshiping themselves. And so we see here, after that little riddle comes the woe. Those trusting the creation of their own hands stand under the judgment of an uncreated, living, and eternal God. Do you notice that? They say to these created things that are not living, awake and arise. What they should do is shut their mouths before the eternal, living, and uncreated God who is very much alive in His temple this very moment. We see this with Isaiah, don't we, in his vision. That he falls down silent and says what? Woe is me. So should the Babylonians have done. But by telling a piece of wood or stone to awaken and arise, they've been foolish. And no amount of gold or silver overlaying it will give it life. This rolls into Habakkuk's final word. A prayer. A hymn. A psalm, if you will. But before we get there, we need to make sense of these woes. What are we to do with them? There's a very real possibility as you're reading this book and as we're studying it. And as I'm preaching it right now, this could be the most boring part of the entire thing. Because it's like, what's going on here? This is weird. What does this mean? Well, let's see if we can make some applications that I think God would have us see. Because on the one hand, these woes give us a test to hold up to our own culture. You all live in a culture, a society. Here's a test to hold up against it. Much like 3D glasses, what can seem so often to us out of whack becomes clear when we put these woes on. Through Habakkuk's glass, we can now see we can see on the one hand that money hungriness that influences so many decisions in our society. 
This, this mindset, if we only had more, we would be happy. We can see this is contrary to God's ways. We can see that the hunger for personal and corporate kingdom expansion is wrong. Because of the cost and the wreckage that's often left behind. We can see the wickedness of the love for power and the bad use of authority that leaves so many people numb and resistant to godly leadership. And finally, we can see the revelation of idolatry among us, among the people that we live, that of worshiping self, worshiping technology, worshiping material possessions and career positions is a waste. It is a shame. And in the end, friend, it is foolishness. But on the other hand, these woes also give us a test to hold up to ourselves as Christians. I'm speaking to you specifically Christians. Like a pristine mirror, we hold these woes up. We can see our own propensities and temptations with the utmost clarity. Friends, I pray that Scripture does this for you. I pray on the one hand that you're in the Bible enough to allow it to do this. And on the other hand, I pray that the Spirit would reveal your own temptations in the pristine mirror of the Bible held up to you face to face. As Hebrews 4 says, it will reveal. And so we see in ourselves how we can be hypocritical, do we not? Saying that we love giving, but actually being greedy in our hearts. We see in ourselves how we can care most about us, wanting to spread our influence and receive the adoration of everyone around us. We can see in ourselves that while we can look to the world for its numbing effect to the burdens of our inner and outer life, we see in ourselves how we can desire to be an authority without any proper submission, hating all the authorities that God has put around us. We see in ourselves how we can be prone, prone to building our own idols. Even taking good things like family and the church and making them God things. That my family has to be a certain way and my church family has to be a certain way and my career has to be a certain way and my home has to be a certain way and I have to look like this and I have to feel like this and I have to be this smart or this prepared. Friends, in and of itself, none of those things are wrong, per se. And yet we can elevate them. Or our whole life is controlled by them. Every decision, every thought, every feeling is controlled by what we must have. These woes are held up to us. And friend, do we realize at the same time for both the Christian and those who are not, the answer to these woes are the same. For in Jesus Christ, all our woes are absorbed and blessings are given to us. And the Beatitudes that are found there in, in the Gospel of Luke, not the ones found in Matthew that we're more familiar with, have you ever noticed in Luke's Beatitudes, there's blessing, 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 woe, woe, woe. These are the two things that are contrasted together. So how do we go from being a life of woe? How do we go from being a funeral dirge to being a blessing, to being blessed? And the answer is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the final woe for the sins of his people. That in his death is the final funeral cry for the sins of his people. 
that his cry from the cross was a woe for your sin and for my sin. That he was the one who was true, that he was the just, that he was the holy shepherd who was worthy of worship. And yet he gave his life away for us. He is the only answer for our hearts that are crushed under the funeral dirges of sin and the train of death that it brings behind it. He is the only one who can remove our grave clothes and clothe us in his grace and his mercy and his new life. My friend, if you're hearing that message for the very first time or you're hearing it for the millionth time and you've finally woken up to it, Pastor David and I will be either at the front or the back afterwards. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow this Christ. But back to Habakkuk. We find that Habakkuk knew full well the sins of the people and the sins of Babylon. He sees that God will not overlook either, but will respond with judgment creating a judgment day funeral for those who are opposed to him. Which leaves us the question, as we examine the world and examine our own hearts, is there a reformation still at hand for the people of God? Is there a reformation still at hand for the people of God? This is what the hymn of chapter 3 is all about. I'll read it as we go through it. But in some ways, this chapter is different from the rest of the book. As I've said, it's a hymn. It's a song. It's a psalm with all the elements. Even beginning with a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shagionoth. Now, we don't know what Shagionoth means. It's this unknown phrase that could have been a tune that was used for worship, a certain musical tune. But we also see the use of Selah here. And this is also an unknown word, though many believe it either means rest or pause or also could mean blessing forever and exaltation to God. And so we see here that that, that this has very much the feel of a song. And it is. But what is this psalm all about? What is this hymn all about? Well, friends, in many ways, I think it is the clearest picture of Christ that we have received thus far in the Minor Prophets. Look at verse 2. O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Yahweh, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. There at the beginning, Habakkuk says that he has heard of the Lord's work, signifying probably the past, more than likely speaking of the Exodus event. And we're going to see this as it moves forward. Next, he asked the Lord to do it again. Do you notice that? To make his work known. What is it that Habakkuk is looking for? He's looking for revival after the Reformation. He wants God's people to be reformed to the ways of God. And he wants God to bring a revival afterwards. To make his work known. And then finally, at the end of verse 2, Habakkuk anchors this hope in God's mercy. In mercy he worked, and in mercy he will work. But how? How will God reveal his mercy to his people? This brings us to the next section of the prayer. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, 
His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him were pe went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Well, this section is what is called a theophany. It's a big word used to describe the appearance of God to his people. And there are several of these in the Old Testament, and they all narrate God's movement specifically to redeem. But what's so interesting here, if you go and look at the Hebrew verbs of what Habakkuk is saying, it's not in the past tense. He's not talking about a redemption that has already happened. Instead, he's talking about one that is yet to come. He's talking about something that is ahead of them. He's talking about a day that will come when God himself will show up. He will show up among his people. And how will he show up? Only the powerful coming of God as he's come in the past. He, Habakkuk says will bring justice for his people. And so we have the mention of Taman and Mount Paran. They're reminders of how God had led his people in the wilderness into the promised land. But verse 3 through 7 makes it clear that this isn't just God arriving to take them back to the promised land, but to something bigger, a global arrival. So verse 3 says the heavens are covered. Verse 4, that he is revealed as the brightness of the sun and his hands full of glowing, explosive power. He makes low all that oppose him and nothing can resist him any more than Pharaoh and his forces could resist the plagues and pestilence preceding the exodus. But it's not just Egypt that he measures up. No, in this future coming, he measures the whole earth, all the nations, and all of creation. Friend, what is this future coming of God? It's nothing less than the future arrival of God made flesh. What is being spoken of here is the second coming of Jesus Christ. We find that now in a partial Redemption, a partial reformation, but we look forward to that final redemption and what that final restoration will look like. You have it there in verses 8 through 15. I won't take time to read those this morning. We see nothing less than a future exodus described when salvation is achieved through God's judgment of the world. Remember this theme that occurs throughout the minor prophets that, that salvation comes through judgment. That judgment and salvation are not two separate things. But when God judges the earth, all of the injustice is wiped out and the righteous are saved. And so Habakkuk says here, this is what God will do with verse 13 there being the very climax of the thing. That by bringing judgment, just as he did on Egypt, as he would do on Babylon, and as he will do on all of those who make themselves enemies. So when Christ returns, he will come out for salvation, for the salvation of his people. And so the question remains for Habakkuk, who's witnessing this dilapidated devotion of his own people and living on the edge of national upheaval wrought by the hand of the Babylonians, those Chaldeans. The question for Habakkuk, the question for you as you sit and you await the second coming of Jesus Christ, how do we respond? What do we do with it? His answer, 
is to walk by faith even in his lament or to rejoice even in the barren time. And that's the final section there. Look at back at verse 16. Like the mountains before, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places to the choir master, the stringed instruments. We see in this section that Habakkuk begins with his own experience as his personal response to what has happened comes out. Like the mountains mentioned, I said a moment ago, he too rises and crumbles and shakes at the anticipation, the future glory of God redeeming finally and fully the people for himself. He's been brought low by his experiences. And yet he, quivering, awaits God's salvation. He's quieted his heart and waited for the Lord's timing. Note how his cries are met with patience. How his lament is met with faith. And this finally blossoms into this bigger metaphor. A metaphor that's not blossoming at all. The book closes by speaking of a land that is cursed. And fruitless. This acts as a metaphor of Habakkuk's own day and own people. They have become fruitless in their worship. They need reformation. They are full of spiritual rot. And though there is a lot of hustle and bustle among the people, there is no fruit displayed. Is it any wonder then that Jesus himself takes up this same metaphor in his final days before his death? You remember... Perhaps in Matthew 21 and Mark 11. That Jesus on going into Jerusalem curses a fig tree. Why? Because though it was fig season. Though the tree had leaves and was in bloom. It had no fruit. Though it's growing under the blessings of God. It did not display any life. But all is not lost. See, friends, when the disciples asked Jesus to explain what he had just done in cursing the fig tree, what does he do? Do you remember? He pivots and talks about prayer. Like the prayer that we find here in Habakkuk. Why does Habakkuk pray? That's the question. Why does Habakkuk pray? Why do you pray? And when the land is fruitless, why does Jesus point his people back to prayer? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only see, I'm sorry, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Friends, what does that faith look like? To that Habakkuk prays. 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and he makes me to tread on my high places. So what good is prayer to us? As we look at the woes of the land around us, as we feel the ongoing battle with sin in our own hearts, where some of us wake up every morning and say, Woe is me! I have to do this another day. When we feel the great need, we desire so strongly to see revival. What good is prayer to us? Friends, it's how we take our sorrows to the Lord, yes. But it's also how we experience a reformation towards joyfulness and abiding trust in the midst of sorrow and calamity. Here's the point of it all. Before revival can come, reformation has to take place. Habakkuk's oracle ends with this glorious vision of a day that we still long for. A day of final revival where life will explode with the glory of God and every sorrow will be demolished into nothing. Until that day, we take up the work of reformation and pray for revival here and now in this place. In some ways, that's been my goal in preaching through these minor prophets. That God would use these prophets as he intended them in in their own day to bring reformation to us. That God would transform our lives. That he would make us more into the people he calls us to be. That we would run back to the ways of his word and to prayer. And friends, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. It is only God's word that can bring reformation. And my prayer has been, as we went through these minor prophets, that he would do just that. Why? So that we can experience revival. I have personally seen this series as a time to call us back to the holy God. And I preach these sermons expectantly that come October, should the Lord tarry, we will find revival and new life spring up in the ministry of Jesus to us by looking to him in the gospel of John. We plan these sermon series on purpose. And so my prayer has been that our lives would be reformed and taken back to the original ways So that when we enter into the life of Christ in just a month. Oh, that God would do a work among us. Because we've prayed up. We've read up. And we've fellowshiped up. And we're ready to go. We're ready for whatever God might bring us. And so friends, this week and the weeks ahead, may we too take up the word of Habakkuk. And shout on and pray on to God. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let us pray. Oh, Father, that we may take joy in you, the God who saves. As we take this moment to consider who you are and what you've done. As we take this moment to trust in you anew. Would you bring reformation to our hearts? Would you rekindle in us a love for you, a love for your word, a love in 
speaking to you in humble prayer. And God, for those who are in here, even right now, who have not experienced new life, who have not experienced regeneration and conversion, Spirit, we pray and we ask that you would come and do that work. That you would rot in them what you have wrought in us through your power, giving life to those who are dead in their sins. For God, you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so we give it to you now. For our King Jesus, in his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.